And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So this is going to be another trip down memory lane, which I think we should all do every once in a while to kind of get us back in touch with our roots, with our childhood. And this one, today's episode, is going to be about toys uh, and their their impact on the world, impact on our lives, the way we see things, the impact on our brain. It's going to be a pretty exciting episode, and I am talking to the greatest toy expert in the world, Tim Walsh, who wrote the quintessential coffee book on the history of toys called Timeless Toys. And I think, you know, a lot of times, especially as people get older, once you hit, you know, 13, 14, get into high school, people kind of discard toys. You kind of go in a couple of different ways. You either go uh, towards sports or you kind of maybe go like the more intellectual slash nerdy route and maybe do games. Uh, things like that, things that are a little higher level. But when it comes to like, you know, toys like the the Ant Farm or the Slinky or Crayola Crayons, you know, I, my mom just sent me a picture of, uh, this is kind of vintage now, but she sent me a picture of a record player. This is one she, she was going to buy it for my niece, which is which is adorable. And I had a record player growing up. I can't believe they still make them, uh, you know, but, but I remember I have very vivid, strong wonderful memories of having this small little record player and they used to have these books that were essentially 32 color color page summaries of a movie uh that would you know like ghostbusters so you would take or et et was one i remember perfectly and so basically you would take the record and you would put it on the record player and it would tell you the story of et and you know 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, and you have a book to go along with. I, I mean, I've got just such incredible memories of that, and I think that that is something that unites all of us. You know, the, the toys we had as a kid, the ones that, uh, you know, that, that were special to us, they always hold a place in our heart, and now we live in a generation where as we get older and have more disposable income, people go and they start recollecting those toys that were so important to them in their youth. Uh, that is, you know, so there's a whole industry of toy collectors. I remember in college, I knew a guy who put himself through college by buying and selling retro toys, vintage toys. And his room had like, you know, I remember He-Man action figures in their blister packs. And I just thought it was the craziest, coolest thing in the world. So there's there's something to this. And and I'm excited. Let's Let's just get right into this. Tim, I'm excited to have you on the show today. You've got kind of a cool history as I was going through things. Uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing, like all the things that you've done, because you're an author, uh, you do sp- you're a speaker, game designer, filmmaker, and a toy historian, which is kind of interesting because toys and games are, they're like brothers and sisters, you know, they're, they're like from the same family, but very, very different, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's kind of interesting that you've done both. We're going to get into all of that, but I think, you know, really ideally, especially being from Florida, Florida you know, has a great athletic history. Uh, let's talk about your athletic career. Now, I will admittedly say 
that some of the stuff came off Wikipedia, which I don't normally like to use, but it was just too interesting not to mention. Um, so you you had a, a varsity you were at varsity football at Colgate where you went to college. Is that part at least accurate? That is true. Really? Yeah, I went to Colgate uh, to be a biology major, which which was great, and an art minor, which serves serves me in the toy industry. But uh, yeah, I was an athlete, played football, and and then end up playing baseball as well. So I was a two sporter there for for four years. Wow, that's I mean that's an incredible feat. I mean you know it's it's amazing how like and, and Colgate's a smaller school. I think it's a, a like three thousand you know enrolled. That's a pretty small school. But being a two sport athlete in college is pretty incredible. Uh, and so I'd also said on Wikipedia, this was the most interesting part to me. <laughs> Uh, and this is the end of Wikipedia. I just these were. T- I feel like this is not right, but I want you to verify it. But it said you were also a part of the Indianapolis Clowns, and you played in Mexico. Now the Indiana Indianapolis Clowns were part of the Negro League, so <laughs> I don't know uh, if that's accurate or not. It is true, really. And I will tell you the story. So, right. of course, most people that know baseball know that when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Uh-huh. Most of the uh, African-American players who were really good went to the major leagues. And that meant that the old Negro Leagues, as they were called, sort of limped along because the, the best players were leaving and, and most fans left with them and went, you know, and, and followed their fan or followed the players they loved in the major leagues. Of course, that took many years to happen. Right. So a lot it of, didn't happen overnight. <laughs> no, it did not happen overnight. Yeah. But a lot of the, the Negro League teams uh, started failing because, you know, you can't afford to lose your customer base, right? So the Indianapolis Clowns continued to play all the way up to 1988 because they had a comedy sort of show oh, as well cool. as baseball, kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters did. Oh, cool. Okay. So I'm not sure when the first – Caucasian player played on the Indianapolis Clowns? That would be a good question. Right. Uh, That's going to be my next question. I was going to ask if you were the Jackie Robinson of the Negro Leagues. (laughs) No, I was not because I know know in the 70s, yeah. So anyway, (laughs) the last season of the Clowns was 1988, and I played on that team. Wow. That's incredible. I, I mean, Hank Aaron played for them. Uh, I mean, they have quite an incredible history. And normally, I got to tell you, uh, they have my favorite team names. Like they, you know, that particular league just really had great mascots. Uh, I mean, they're just really inventive. The clowns, I don't know. (laughs) That's the only one where I kind of like raise my eyebrow like, yeah, you probably could have come up with something better than that. Um, but, uh, but it's cool. You were part of the last season. That's pretty incredible. Now, what about playing in Mexico? Is that part of this? Did they tour down in Mexico as well? Or is that something different? No, it was not. It was a separate league. It was, uh, I played for the Morleone Industrials, which was, and that's another good one. That's, I like that. Yeah, yeah. They were about five hours South of Mexico city. So that was like oh in God. the middle of Mexico. That was quite <laughs> an, any yeah. stories from that season as well. Wow. So what was, give me, give me, give me a story too about that. What was, did you, so you, did you live five hours South of Mexico city? I did. I was one of three Americans. Wow. Uh, and, and what position and, did you play before you tell the story? What, what position did you play? I was a pitcher. Oh, wow. Okay. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. And within the first week, the other two Americans quit and said, we're out of here. Yeah. Uh, so I was the I was the only and it was funny because I'm six, seven uh, and 
there hadn't been a white person in this town in a while because I got plenty of looks. And then I also was quite tall. So Right, right. <laughs> um, but I absolutely fell in love with the Mexican people. It was a wonderful experience. It was great. So I stuck it out the whole season and uh, made some friends and played some ball and fell in love with Mexican food. And uh, it was great. Wow. Uh, did you get? Did, did you have to like deal with Montezuma's revenge, or were you able to kind of tolerate the spicy food in the in the water? You know, I was. I started off pretty tame. Yeah. Being this, because the other, this is a classic American story, right? Uh, that I I figured, oh, everyone knows English. You know, I, yeah. I'll have of no course. problem. And of that was not the case at all. <laughs> get out of here. Way, get out of here, Tim. <laughs> this was an Acapulco or Tijuana. This was way down south. Yeah. And uh, I was saved by a young lady who uh, wanted to practice her English, and uh, <laughs> she was my she became my translator. But I learned Spanish pretty quick and was able to order pretty tame food to begin with. But by the time I left, about four months later, I was eating pretty much everything. It was awesome. Really? Food. Yeah, it was great. So you were able to stomach it. I mean, because it's pretty. It's very different. You know, Mexican food in the United States, even here in Los Angeles, is still pretty Americanized. Oh yes, no. the The only meal that I that, that I regretted was the Christmas morning. Yeah. I uh, had the, everything was closed, and we had a game on Christmas morning. So I, the team went to this local place that I hadn't been to before, and I ordered what I thought was beef soup because I was Uh-oh. struggling with the translation of beef. But it was basically menudo. It was yeah. it was beef stomach. Right. Cow stomach. <laughs> I was gonna say, and it was incredibly <laughs> spicy. It was like. Rubber and Tabasco sauce pretty much was what it was. And it was a little difficult to play uh, later that day because I kept burping acid. Oh, and uh, yeah. Oh. Other than that, yeah. it was pretty, pretty smooth sailing. Yeah, pretty smooth sailing <laughs> culturally and cu- cuisine-wise. Well, that's amazing. And I do want to mention what I forgot to mention this other very important thing. You may have broke the color barrier, barrier in the Negro Leagues, but they also, that particular, the Indianapolis Clowns also were the first team to sign a female to a contract, which is pretty interesting. Um, so lots going on there historically. Um, that it's, you know, it's, it's funny how like, how life goes, you know, it, you, when, when, when you look at your trajectory and I'm just, you know, I'm an outsider here, just kind of looking at everything. You've had kind of an interesting trajectory because as you mentioned, you, you played sports and then you had a biology degree. And if I, if I understand Colgate correctly, um, every degree there is an art degree. So did you have, do you have a bachelor's of arts in biology? Is that how that works? That is true. Yes. And I was an art minor. <laughs> And, and and an uh, art minor, right? Yeah, and I know yeah a lot of pre meds. It was it was a Colgate is not an easy easy uh, curriculum to pass. They're, they're challenging challenging courses. Yeah, yeah. I, I I ended up getting a biology degree, even though uh, I it was in it was uh, rough sledding. A lot of very intelligent classmates in that class um, went on to be doctors and neurosurgeons and all kinds of things. Um, but I took a right turn into games, so you, who knows what the future holds, right? You, you think you know you're going you're gonna to go one way, and you just never know. Well, that is, I mean, that is quite a right turn. I mean, besides the fact, I mean, what really, I, what really blew my mind is that they have bachelors of arts in biology, like that, like shorted out my brain for a second. I had to like make sure that I had that correct. Uh, and so you you took that biology degree and you turned it into something that is not biological at all. How did you like 
pop into games? Because it happened in college, right? Like your first foray into the game world. It did. We were influenced like a lot of game inventors by the success of Trivial Pursuit. So we were okay. freshmen at Colgate and Trivial Pursuit sold 20 million copies in 1984. Yep. Good game. That's a huge number, right? So, uh, you know, there, there are hits that, you know, if you sell a million copies, you're called, you know, uh, a pretty big hit in the industry because that's a big number. So 20 million is huge. So we heard a rumor that two of the inventors of Trivial Pursuit went to Colgate, found out that was true. They were ice hockey players. And my friends and I thought, oh, it'd be cool to invent a game. We should do that. And of course, we didn't have an idea for one. So right. we dropped, <laughs> dropped the idea. And then our senior year, Pictionary comes out. And again, huge success. I believe they sold 8 million copies in 1987 or 88. And uh, we thought, oh, well, this is a sign from above. You know, we need to invent a game. And, and, and we ended up doing that. So when I gra- the, the segue came when I graduated. I started working for a rehab center. I was going to be, be a, a sports therapist or a, a, a physical therapist. And I working at a place for post-operative back patients, people that were trying to get back on their feet after back surgery. And we had this idea for the game which would become Tribond and I started playing the game with people in the rehab center and one thing led to another and that's where the right turn happened. Wow. So you where did the idea for it come from? Like the idea for Tribond? So I have two I two partners in Tribond, uh Ed Musini and Dave Urich. They're my buddies from Colgate. And Ed was the one that had the core idea of three things with something in common. And uh it's trivia. You know, so if I ask you, you know, three people like uh, Timothy Dalton, Daniel Craig, and Sean Connery, right. they they all played James Bond. So that's very trivia related. Yes. But there's other questions in Tribond like Florida, a locksmith, and a piano. And what they have in common are... They all have keys. Did they nail it? Very good. Yeah. Well done, Thank yeah. You. They call me the analytical mastermind. Can't get anything by me. <laughs> and that's not trivia. That's how you think or right. lateral thinking or deductive reasoning or, you know, what is it? Sure. It's a, so it was different enough from Trivial Pursuit to sort of catch on. And uh, when Ed and Dave came down to Sarasota where, where we developed the game and uh, we worked on it and that was 1988. And uh, – no, sorry, 89 because then it premiered – at New York Toy Fair in 1990, which is 30 years ago. Hard to believe. It is such a great concept for a game that it was almost turned into a game show, right? Yeah, over the years, it was crazy, all the things. We had a, a radio game show that we did a pilot for in Universal Studios. That was a blast. And we had a TV game show pilot produced that, that uh, unfortunately wasn't picked up, but that that was a lot of great memories from Tribon. We ended up selling over three million copies in thirteen different countries, wow. and it, it was fun. Well, and you you also had another hit named Blurt, which my favorite my favorite piece of trivia with this game is that you uploaded a video of picking up that game from Chick Fil A. Uh, I mean, a riveting video, by the way, just absolutely <laughs> mind blowing. Yeah, um, a true pioneer in the YouTube world. But it was really cool. I mean, it must have been amazing to like see your game as like a prize at one of the biggest chains in the country. Well, that yeah, it was a full circle kind of moment, which I probably didn't articulate very well in the video. But Blurt came out of a classroom in Sarasota, Florida. Okay, uh, my wife 
my wife was a teacher at the time and I was helping her out and had the idea for the game. And, and then, you know, 20, what, 23 years later in Sarasota, I find out, you know, it's going to be a kid's meal prize. And I, I make that video driving through a, a Sarasota Chick-fil-A and getting a, a blurt kid's <laughs> meal. Which, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. I would have loved it if when you ordered the kid's meal, they looked in your car and said, no, we can't give you a kid's meal. So uh, you have a, you have a beard. There's not giving you a kid's meal. Um, like that would have been my favorite part, but, uh, my, now my favorite part is you like putting all the pieces together and like having the game in the back seat with a little, you know, it even has a, it comes with the die that you like that made out of cardboard that you put together. It's, it's a cool little thing. I mean, that's, yeah. that's pretty amazing. Uh, so you, you've, you've been a game designer. I love board games. You know, it's funny that there's this whole, like in the past 10 years, this board game renaissance. Uh, and so I've become quite an avid board game fan, although I have to admit as much as Tribond as awesome as it sounds. And I would, I would definitely play that game. My tastes are a little more macabre. So like all of my board games involve zombies or horror or something like that. Um, I've got a game involving Jack the Ripper where you try to catch Jack the Ripper. So I have a very specific board game taste. Um, and you do like more party educational games. Um, but those are amazing as far when, – when it comes to getting groups of people together, I mean trivia is the way to go. People love trivia games. Um, it's amazing stuff. Now, so you, you were a game designer, are a game designer, but you wrote this incredible book um, that a lot of people consider to be like the reference book when it comes to the history of toys. And I believe yeah. it's mostly American toys. I got an un, an abridged version of the book, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's an American toys. It's not all American. Some of them are from so Trivial Pursuits from Canada originally, and Etch Sketch came from Britain, and uh, the Adventure of Jenga is from from Britain. So the I, I really look at um, inventors in that book called Timeless Toys, and it's the story of how the toys and games came to be. Um, and most of the, I would say that all the toys in there are, are pretty, pretty worldwide. Uh, there are some American centric, America centric ones like, uh, the flexible flyer sled, I'd say. Well, let me say this because I think that may be true. Their origins may be elsewhere, but it really follows the popularity in the United States. Like it doesn't, t- I mean, there aren't really like, Hey, the, the giggity Bob was really popular in Britain. Let's talk about that. That it right. never made it to the States. You know what I mean? Like. Am I correct in that at least? Yes, yes, that's fair to say. Okay, okay, which which is which is just an interesting. The only reason why I want to make that point is that I think it's important to note that it's really, in a sense, the um, chronicling of toy fads in the United States. And some, you know, it's funny how many of these toys. You know, it's really interesting to like look at. You know, the idea that crayons, for example, Crayola crayons had an origin date. You know, you think of them as being around forever. You look right. at this timeline and you see a box of crayons from like 1913, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, you have this great, you, you know, you include these incredible timelines where you can really see where it fell in the history of toys. Uh, was that kind of weird to like realize that like some of these toys that you kind of think of as being around forever, like had a debut at some point? Yeah, well, one of the reasons we ended up with the title Timeless Toys is for that very reason, because I think when you you grow up and you have kids of your own or grandkids or nieces and nephews that you want to buy a toy or game for, a lot of times you end up buying them what you loved when you were a kid. So right. 
it's such a no brainer to get a box of crowns for someone you love because you, <laughs> you played with them too. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these toys are multi, multi-generational, which is another reason why I wrote the book, because if you write a piece of music that sells a million copies, you you get a platinum record. And right. if you write yeah. a book that sells a million copies, you, you're going to have that made into a movie if it's a novel, because <laughs> right. that, that's a huge number. But if you're Eleanor Abbott and you invented Candyland and have sold over 150 million copies or 150 times platinum, most people have never heard of you. Right. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, like, because you've got, you know, the inventor of the slinky. And, and you know, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but you, you, you're a filmmaker as well. And you did two great movies, two documentaries, one called Toyland and one called Operation, Operation, The Power of Play. And in Operation, Operation, you talk to the inventor of Operation who yep. nobody knows, but like he, you know, throughout the movie, you see how much he inspired people to become doctors. And it's, yep. you know, it's it, it's very true. You really don't see that, which I guess is a reason why, you know, it's going back to, first of all, it's really, I, I want to make the connection between your biology background, working in a rehab center, and then your connection to John Spinello, who invented Operation. Like, that's a pretty crazy connection. Um, yeah. But also that you were such a great athlete. Um, when you're an, like, when you're an athlete, you catch a lot more headlines, people, you know, that's a, a way more sexy job then and even rock star as well you know some things you mentioned and you know game designers who can do very well for themselves they they don't have that like sex symbol status why do you think that is yeah i think play is a very complicated thing you know because obviously people you mentioned rock stars and athletes both of both of them are playing playing music playing a sport right so those are broad and throw actors into the mix they're playing a character exactly exactly um, but the play, when it comes to, you know, face-to-face -face play, is sort of, I wouldn't say frowned upon, but there's definitely in the American culture, we value work. You know, yeah. we have expressions like way to work, good work, and we have expressions in, in terms of play, like quit playing with that, don't play around. You know, there's a negative ah. connotation to play. Um, and yet the people that I tried to chronicle in that book have entertained and educated and really strengthened relationships because when you're playing a game across from someone face to face, you know, you're, you're talking about a heck of a lot more than the game, right? You're, you're strengthening relationships. So I believe the, the inventors of, of games and toys are very, very important to our culture. And, uh, it's one way to celebrate them is by writing that book and doing those films. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting point. You know, it's funny. So there are a lot of, um, like, I'm very into board games. And there's, you know, board game conventions where you can go and play board games for four yeah. days straight. And I used to attend these all the time. And I got to say, one of the interesting things about, like, this is specifically board game culture, is that it's very difficult to, like, enter into someone's, like, social circle and play a game with them. You know, like, it's always it's always promoted as, like, oh, people love to play games with each other. Not true. And and I actually understand that because some of the games that I play, you can play them for, you know, two, three hours or whatever. And the last thing in the world you want is to be stuck at a table with someone you don't like for three hours competing with them <laughs> in a game. Like, I've had that happen. And it's, let me tell you, Tim, it's the most miserable times of my life that I can remember. <laughs> um, so there, it's really tricky because it's like this, it's almost like counterintuitive. 
But then there are certain games that are perfect, you know, and, and you know, if this is, you know, your show, so we'll give you another plug. You know, Tribond is a perfect example of something that doesn't need to take three hours, and it can be fun, and when it stops being fun, you can stop playing it. You know, like, those are almost more ideal for group settings than even board games, I would think. Right. Yeah, well, the, they're known as Euro games in our industry, right? The games are more complicated and take a little bit longer to play. Um in most cases, you're playing games with people that you know or Fair people yeah. your your friend brings a friend to the party, right? But yeah, there's all there's games for everybody. There's games that take 10 minutes to play and are really easy to get into. And then there's games that can take, you know, days to play. Right. So <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty uh, rich culture, the board game culture. No, it is. And so let's move, let's let's talk about toys here because they're, they're connected. I mentioned that they're they're very connected, you know, brother and sister, we'll say. Um, definitely coming from the same parents, but toys are, you know, toys are, are, can be individual. You can, you can play with them in groups and you, you know, you chronicled all these amazing toys and you, you mentioned this one thing, which I think is so true where parents kind of give the gifts that they had as a kid to their kids Mm. to enjoy. And I want to share You know, I've got this funny story. So, uh, I'm not going to make it, it's just going to sound sad. I'm not trying to bring everyone down. It's actually a very funny story, <laughs> but, uh, I have, I had a horrible stepdad growing up. Like he was just a terrible, terrible person. Mm. And what I remember one of the things that the only time that he really tried to connect with me, was when I was like eight or nine and he bought me what we called a road race set. So basically it was, you know, like, uh, like cars that you put on like a track and you like pull a trigger and then it races around the track, right? Slap car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was like powered. It was battery powered. So you could like, and you could go, you know, they had like interchangeable pieces. So we went out and bought this whole thing. Now, the problem was I wasn't really that into it. And you needed at least two people, and he wasn't going to go that far to actually play with me. So I had this thing, and, and you know, to his credit, he built this huge table, and it, was in, it took up most of my room. He really went all out for this thing, and I just wasn't into it. You know, it just wasn't my thing. And I remember one day it was just gone, like he just sold it, and like that was kind of the last time he ever like ever engage with me in a meaningful way and i say that again not to bring everybody down but even someone as horrible as him made an attempt to reach out (laughs) through toys which is just the power of what you're talking about in that when toys mean so much to us as children that we carry that look at all the people look at all the adults who go to conventions to find rare toys like you're talking about things that really mean a lot to people and I think that it's just there's a lot to that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, number one. And number two, tell me a little bit about the toys that were that important to you growing up. Well, yeah, I mean, play informs what you what what many people become as adults, right? Yeah. I mean, in my experience, there's plenty of architects out there that loved Lego blocks, right? And sure. there's <laughs> – yeah. to there's – we were amazed when we did our film, the people that wrote to us – and said, you know, I played operation and now I'm a nurse. And I loved operation when I was a kid and now I'm a physician's assistant or whatever. So all these stories of people that entered the medical field, and one in particular, we chronicle in the film, uh, a doctor, uh, Stephen Stryker, who is a teacher of surgery at Northwestern. He literally was sick, needed surgery, scared because apparently it was a pretty serious surgery. 
his aunt bought him an operation game and he says that, you know, that took the fear away and he thought it was funny. And <laughs> he literally ended up, you know, becoming infatuated with medicine because of that game. And now he teaches surgery. Right. So uh, there's that sort of connection. And then, you know, th th there's there's a reason why when you're watching Field of Dreams and Kevin Costner wants to have a catch with his dad and everyone in the theater is like bawling. Right. Yeah. It's because play connects us. Yeah. And when you pull someone in a radio flyer wagon, you know, to the beach or trick or treating or whatever, like we did with our girls, my wife and I, uh -huh. that creates a, a connection. Right. So and then the second question you had, my favorite. So, geez, I was an athlete, so I love playing outdoors. So uh, wiffle ball was a big one for me. Uh -huh. Um, big wheel was a low, a low riding, uh, a tricycle that I loved doing donuts in the driveway with my big wheel and uh super ball was a, was a big one too. That was a wow product. We used to buy those for a buck and try to bounce them over our house. And, right. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of my favorites were ones you could play outside. That's for, you know, it's, I love that you mentioned big wheel because I remember one of my favorite toys growing up was I had a red and black big wheel. Uh, if you don't know what these are, I'll put a picture up on, on the website. These are, oh God, they were so amazing. Cause it was, it almost felt like a motorcycle for a kid, except it's, yes. it's a tricycle. It's like, it's like a BA tricycle. You know, it's just this cool thing when you're three years old, uh, you know, you don't want to be riding on a tricycle. You want a big wheel, these huge wheels in the back. And I remember uh, I had a deflated volleyball. That, at my, this was at my grandmother's house, and I had a deflated volleyball. And my grandma at the time, you know, this is a while ago, she had these driving gloves. So this is when, like, women wore driving gloves. And so I had all this stuff. So I would go and I would take this deflated ball and I'd, you know, punch it out like a helmet. I was wearing my – even as a kid, I knew the importance of wearing a helmet, even if it was made out of a deflated volleyball. And I put on these riding gloves, and I would go up and down – the uh, driveway, you know, and just like you, I, I think uh -huh. it was amazing. Did, now, did you have tassels on your handlebars? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think now that you mention it, oh, my God, I didn't see them in my memory until you just mentioned that. I think there were black and red tassels coming out of the handlebars. Is that right or am I making that up? Well, a lot of people customized there. I, I, we had a tire swing and it, it had this dry, dry dirt under it. And I would take a brown paper bag and fill it with the dry dirt and then poke a hole in the bag. <laughs> so that when I was going down the sidewalk on my big wheel, it looked like smoke was coming out the back. That is awesome. I love that. That's great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because I even remember, you know, like things like that. People, it was always funny to see people turn their toys into like adult stuff. So like smoke coming out. And I remember putting a playing card to make your bike sound like it was an engine, you know, like weird stuff like that, that everybody did, you know? So I got a weird question for you. I'll ask the questions around here, Tim. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> did you ever flip your big wheel over and spin the tires with the pedal and try to sell ice cream? I absolutely did. Why is that ice cream though? But yes, I ice cream. No idea. <laughs> I have run into. I, I did it, and I ran into. I have in my years. I've met Big Wheel fans, and they tell mm -hmm. that story, and I'm like, "What the heck does that have to do with ice cream at all?" And why mm -hmm. did so many people do it? I, I mean, it's 
it's kind of like turning the crank with a monkey, you know, next to you. Right, right. I get that, but I have no idea the so. If anyone listening knows, the association <laughs> yeah, between an upside down big wheel and selling ice cream, I want to know what it is. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I, as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, you turn it over and sell ice cream. Everybody did it, but it, I don't know where it came from. It wasn't on like a TV show. That's so, and it's nothing like like I've I've got an ice cream maker now, and you're not really cranking anything. Uh, maybe you did like in you know in the pioneer days or something. Maybe that was similar to that. But yeah, well, we did that. We made our own ice cream, and maybe that was the association. I don't know, but it seemed there's something in the back of my mind that I'm missing. That there was some you know maybe the ice cream man had a little jingle, and the, I, I don't know. That's so yeah, it's so funny, <laughs> and it's also funny. You know, I did an episode on memory uh, and just like how crazy and malleable our memory is. But it's just funny to me how. I didn't think of any of that stuff until you mentioned it, and then immediately, like, yes, tassels. I remember tassels on my handlebars. Yes, I absolutely remember spinning it over. Um, it's funny how you can have these kind of memories that are just kind of tied back there, but they're so strong at the time, as you mentioned, because play is so important, that you can just kind of just bring them back like a flashbulb memory immediately, you know? Yeah. No, the, I talk about in the book uh, Proustian memory, which is uh, based on uh, Marcel Proust, the, the – the author wrote a story about how when he smelled, uh, I think it was lime blossom tea, it took him back to his grandmother's attic, right? Well, for us, like the smell of Play-Doh or the smell of a box of Crayola crayons can take you right back to, you know, kindergarten or being on the on the back porch at your aunt's coloring like crazy, right? No, absolutely. And, and I imagine, you know, along those lines, I imagine – that just the journey of writing this book, Timeless Toys, must have been like that almost every day. Because not only are you in, you know, learning about all the toys that you loved, and also toys you probably didn't even know about, but also you're talking to the people. You're, you know, you're you're meet the inventor of Play-Doh and the inventor of, you know, like you mentioned Candyland, the Slinky. You know, you did a whole book on Whammo products, Super Bowl, Frisbee. I mean, what was that process like? Just kind of going down memory lane with all that stuff. Well, you know, I started working on the book uh, in the in the late 90s when the Internet was just exploding. And I knew if you're going to write a book that is a coffee table esque book with pictures and stories, why is someone going to buy this book for thirty dollars if they could just go on the Internet and find the same information? So that meant trying to get pictures and interviews that, you know, you couldn't readily get. So I dove pretty deep in talking to inventors or the relatives of inventors if they had passed to try to get some stories and some insight into how these things were created. So that was great fun. And, uh, yeah, you know, they're transformative. These stories, these these memories. One of my favorite things to do at a book signing is to just watch people. They pick up the book and then they start flipping through the pages and they're gone. They're no longer – in front of me they're in their backyard you know in 1968 or they're in their you know at the kitchen table with uh one of their favorite dolls or whatever it's just so funny to see how these people are transported by the the, the old pictures yeah yeah it's very very true you know it's funny because there's an interesting transition when i was a kid um you know in, th- in this interview it's so funny this interview is coming off of two interviews on on video games 
and just how like video games, you know, there's a real transition between you mentioned playing outdoors. I did that a lot. I mean, I don't don't get me wrong, but I was also in the generation where video games became something that people also did and, and did together. And it's funny mm-hmm. how, you know, if I put in an old video game uh, that I played as a kid, it's kind of a very similar thing. You know, I remember spending a Saturday with a couple of my best friends trying to beat one of the video games, you know. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. one of those weird things where, you know, whether it's a toy, whether it's a game, these moments in your childhood are so important. And so, you know, books like this are just, they're really, it's just interesting to see how, like, as a culture, as kids, like, what are the things that that entranced us at a particular time and also i gotta tell you one of the things i was most amazed with is just the longevity of some of these things i was listening to an episode uh, another podcast about the rubik's cube and just you know Mm. how just not only first of all it's impossible to solve without help which i had no idea (laughs) Uh, i didn't know that i thought i was i was like oh well only smart people can solve it it's like well no only computers can solve it (laughs) like like unless you know the tricks to it or you know the rare genius um but like it's been around forever the slinky's been around forever you know play-doh crayons um, the, the ant farm, you know, people still buy ant farms. Uh, yeah. that, that must've been pretty cool to like really talk to these people about these inventions. Which one was your favorite interview? Like, what are you the most excited that you were able to get a hold of the person or thing or whatever? Hmm. Well, a lot of these people aren't with us anymore, you know, uh, so the invent you mentioned ant farm. I was, uh, interviewed Milt Levine, the, the inventor of ant farm and, uh, he was hilarious. I think he was 92 when I spoke to him, and uh, he had a really high-pitched voice. <laughs> My favorite story of his was a joke he probably had told a million times, but he said, you know, people talk about how ants can lift 10 times their body weight, and but I discovered their most amazing feat yet. And I was like, what's that, Milt? And he said, they put three kids through college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was definitely not that was not the first time you he, he didn't try that material out on you that was no, no, yeah. But yeah you know you, you mentioned <laughs> and we talked earlier about how toys are timeless you know you think about monopoly so monopoly came out during the depression 1934 uh 33 in a, in a different form but it really hit big time in 1934 so what other entertainment choice from 1934 is not only viable, meaning, you know, there's no songs from 1934 that are still in the top charts of music today. You can find those. There's no radio program or TV uh, wasn't even around yet. Uh, the, the hit movie from 1934 is not still trending on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. but, but Monopoly still sells, uh, you know, over a million copies a year. And it's it's still around. And you can take any hit toy or game. From any era, and that's still the case. 1948, Scrabble, huge hit. What other music, movie, song, you know, book from 1948 is still hugely popular, and and you you'd be hard pressed to find it. So there's something about toys and games that are transcendent. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's really, it's really interesting, and and. You know, the other thing that was that is kind of interesting, and I, this just made me think of that. But when you're talking about the people who invent these things, you know, you uh, and and I, I think in Toyland, you talk to some of the people who invented some of these timeless pieces. And it's amazing to me, like and especially in Operation, Operation, the power of play, where 
you know, the reason why, not to give away too much of the movie, but the reason why he's in this predicament is because he got screwed over by a, a game designer, you know? Um, like, that's a quintessential part of this whole thing. The inventors of Play-Doh... Um, you know, they didn't – I, I don't know exactly how it worked, but they came up with the name. They didn't sell it. They're living in poverty. And meanwhile, Play-Doh is, you know, a multi-bazillion dollar that's – that's an official number. Um, official, that's the <laughs> official report. Uh, that's, they're making millions on this stuff. That really bothered me. And they were kind of like, oh, well, it's, kids are having fun. Like, it's fine. And I, I just – I'm not that person. You know, I, I just I would not have been I would have not given up that easily. Yeah. Well, and the, you're speaking of Kay Zufall and her husband, Bob, they they he was a doctor and she was a teacher for years. And she she was the sister in law of the inventor who and, and they were going to call it uh, some modeling compound Ra- rainbow. Yeah. Modeling rainbow compound. colored modeling compounders. Yeah. And she said, oh, you can't call it that. So, yeah, she ended up naming it. And um but yeah, they, they, they weren't in poverty, but they certainly would have been much, much better off if if they had gotten a piece of every every since they sell ninety five million cans of wow. play doh a year. Yeah. Um yeah, unfortunately John, you know, struck a bad deal with the operation thing. Um so it's it's and the the inventor of Monopoly, the true you know, gameplay of Monopoly was Lizzie McGee, uh, a, a woman who invented the landlord game, which was the precursor to Monopoly. So there are stories of people that, that cut bad deals and, and it's, it's sad. Yeah. I mean, and it's true in the music, you know, it's true in the music industry, you know, easy. E had a, had he's, it's kind of like the joke that he got so screwed over with his music, you know, like the, the contract read, like someone else owns it into perpetuity, into the galaxy. Like, I mean, it's just, you know, intergalactic music rights, you know, came out in the eighties, which is bananas. Um, yeah, you know, it, it is, it's just really sad, you know, that, and what's, what I thought was funny is the more I learned about Marvin Glass, who was, who was the um, person who uh, screwed over John Spinello. I mean, he was kind of known there, there, everyone in the, in, you know, in the movies when asked about him, they had either a story about him not paying them money or promising them money. Like he was really not good. And I think if I remember correctly, he died in 1974 but from what I understand, uh, if this is, information is correct, two years later, um, a disgruntled game designer came in and shot two of his executives and then committed suicide. So, uh, you know, I don't maybe I'm kind of taking a, a step here, but it doesn't seem unlikely that he disgruntled people enough to kind of come in and shoot the place up, which is that's saying something when you push someone to that point. You know, yeah, of course, you can't get in in the in the head of people to know exactly what. But 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 he he certainly had uh, uh, I believe a list of names in his shoe and you know there was some strange stories about that but yeah that was a, one of the first workplace shootings in Chicago wow. uh, with Marvin Glass Studio very sad story it is an incredibly sad story and you know and it's what, what's the, the worst about it is that he died two years previously so he kind of like made the mess and everyone else had to pay for it uh, but again you don't know I'm making I'm jumping to conclusions I understand that so I'm not reporting the news here but it was just a very interesting story to hear um, and it is really sad. I, I remember what, listening to some of these people and, you know, just how sad it was. But, the, you know, there's also some great stories. Um, you know, the interesting story about Slinky. I thought the Slinky story was just incredible where you have yeah. an inventor 
who, you know, creates the slinky uh, with his wife and he ends up joining like a cult, leaves, and then she ends up running the business for and it's still successful today. Like the slinky's still around, you know, and yeah, and she was a a female CEO when there weren't many female CEOs. And, you know, from talking to her and the family, when uh, Richard James left, he, you know, the company was struggling and dead and he had funneled a lot of the money away to this, what she called a cult in South South America. And- it was the Wycliffe Bible translator. So they basically like translated the Bible into multiple languages. But he moved out of the country, moved to Bolivia. Cult may be a strong word, but but uh, it was definitely a religious organization. Yeah, I don't think the money was going to Wycliffe. I think it was going to this outfit in South America that oh, okay. wasn't totally on the up and up. Got it. Okay. But the point is, she could have folded the tent when he left, and yeah. instead she she didn't. And uh, the the slinky jingle was part of her genius, yeah. uh, which people can still sing. And yeah, they made them they made them in Hollidaysburg, PA, uh, ever since. Yeah, it's amazing. Betty James is her name, and she, um, she from what I understand, I think I got this from your movie, but. They are still using the same equipment that she helped to kind of develop in 1945. I, I got to say, I find that hard to believe, but not impossible. There wasn't any updates since 1945? Well, when we did our film Toyland, that was 2010, and we got to tour the factory. And, you know, they're, they're, things back then were made to last, right? These, these things. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, they, they may have upgraded them. I'm sure they probably have, but um, it wasn't. It, it was basically taking wire and spooling it, right? So it wasn't wasn't a whole lot of moving parts. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it was really cool to see these giant spools of wire turned into you know slinkies. It was pretty pretty amazing. That is, am- I mean, that's that, that process has to be really cool just to see. And I think like you know going and seeing the slinky factory, I think that would be really cool to like see the spool and like see it turned into this thing, you know, get put into the packages. I I, I think that stuff's amazing. Oh, yeah. It, it was very cool. One of the highlights of my career was being able to, you know, go around and make that film and sh- sh- kind of pull the curtain back on the on toys and shooting in the, the Slinky Factory was was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, meeting Betty James before she passed away, uh, we filmed in her house. She was so gracious to Ken. Ken Sons is the director of Toyland. And uh, in fact, uh, Betty uh, gave us a bottle of champagne. And we invited her to Sarasota um, Film Festival where Toyland was going to debut. And she said, I'm going to come there. And unfortunately, she passed away before the movie edited. But we – the the film premiered at the Sarasota Film Festival and then Ken and I went up on the roof uh, and – opened up that bottle of champagne and toasted to Betty James. It was oh, pretty cool. really cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Wow, what a story. You know, and it's 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 funny because the, 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 the movies have won lots of awards. My favorite award that you've won is, I believe, it's Best Film at the Naperville Independent Film Festival. Um, yeah. Because I lived in Naperville. I'm from Chicago, and I lived in Naperville for a little bit. And let me tell you something. If it's one thing that the Napervillians know, it's good documentaries. So that is that is an incredible honor, sir. No, it was awesome. Peggy Brown and I uh, co-produced and co-directed that film. And John and his wife, Madeline, who also was in the film, were, they were able to come with us. So the four of us were there and, and we were up up for, uh, you know, best document, documentary. And it was 
it was wonderful to win that. But then when we got best overall film, we it's funny, we were filming at the time, always filmmakers, right? Right. So filmmaking. And then when they announced that we had won best overall film, uh, Madeline Spinello lets out this cry. <laughs> 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 this cry of celebration. You know, it was great. And we're just thankful we were able to give John a little red, red carpet moment. And that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really cool, you know, and it's again, it's the movies kind of show the behind the scene process. And as I said, I, I really enjoy this, you know. And I think people who sometimes make this stuff don't realize that there are so many people out there who just want to see how it's made. And and I think you know your movie Toyland does that really well because the movie is essentially about you designing and trying to sell a toy slash game. Um, yeah. slash creative product. I guess I, I didn't realize how hard it was to categorize until I just started talking. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it's that process is really difficult. <laughs> like, it is... I was amazed at just how hard it is to go from concept... You know, harder... Because I've worked in television, I've worked in radio, like, I've worked in... I do podcasts, obviously. I do a lot of creative endeavors. And so I understand the work that goes into creating something. But sure. for some reason, toys seem to kind of take it – maybe it's because I don't understand it as much. But it seems to just take it to a whole nother level because you're creating this interactive experience, which all the previous things that I mentioned do. But there's also this tangible thing. You know, Everything else exists on a television, on a radio, on a computer. But this is something you have to actually like create the thing. Um, and by the way, your sculpting skills are unbelievable. By the way, if you, if you see the movie for one reason, it's to look at you create a chin out of Play-Doh. It's to, phenomenal stuff. Um, yeah. But like, how how do you think that that – do you think that – I mean, am I wrong here? Do you think that process is harder, easier? No, I see what you're saying. I mean, what, the, the obvious thing is that you're you're creating for one of the most fickle consumer oh, groups. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Right? Your yeah. kids. Who knows what's going to – and that's part of the beauty of, of – of, designing toys and games is no one knows where the next hit is going to come from. And it's, it's only in retrospect that, that you realize, you know, you can't guess at this thing. You know, I remember a a Milton Bradley executive and the name escapes me as to who it was, but he was getting lamb basted for, for having rejected uh, Ninja Turtles. Uh And, and, he was kind of getting flack for, oh, you passed on Ninja Turtles. How could you be so stupid? And he was like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop and pretend you've never heard of this. Right. There are <laughs> turtles that live in the sewer and eat pizza and skateboard. It's the dumbest idea, you know. Yeah. So when you kind of step back, you're like, yeah, probably a lot of people miss that, right? And yeah. Um, so in that regard, it's pretty kind of cool to try to chase you know what's going to be the next hit but you're you are right that you have to physically make make this thing you know it it lives in the real world it's not a it's not a file that uh sort of when a song is released it kind of becomes it's 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 kind of hard to articulate but i've heard it expressed that you know you write a song and then once you release it it's in a way it's no longer yours it's just out there in the ether and people means something to different people right so yeah the, a physical toy or game i guess holds a different space well it's just difficult i mean just in the just in the design process there's a whole nother level like you don't create a song that someone can touch 
You know, you're not touching, you're listening to it. And so, you know, it's a little similar. I mean, I'm sure musicians would argue with me and they'd probably have a fair point. You are still composing and creating something for the ear. But I don't know. It just seems like the actual construction is difficult. You know, it's funny. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle example is a good one. And, you know, you'll never find me defending corporate executives, but I'm going to in this particular case. Because when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out... The book is the book is extraordinarily violent and for adults, and so you know it's it wasn't this like fun loving child thing. Right. Like they had to really develop it into that, um, but that is not what it was when it was when it was a you know before it was a cartoon before it was a toy. So I actually understand that, uh, mm-hmm. and and I would also argue that probably now you know the history of toys better than I do, but I would say the worst toy misstep in the history of toys would be when Kenner or the company who owned Kenner let the license lapse, a $10,000 license lapse on the Star Wars toys. <laughs> I, I think that was that. I think that's the worst. I think so. Sure. Am I wrong? As far as a judgment call. Yeah. Well, financially, that's, yeah. I, you're talking, oh, yeah. it happened in the nineties, I think long yeah. after they were successful and when new movies were coming out. Yeah. It's, it's of course, again, when you're looking back in time, I remember a similar story because you're, I, I would say you're correct. Okay. Because Star Wars was so big and it was such an accident. It wasn't, it was just an, it was just a misfiling of something. Yeah. Like it wasn't even like a creative decision, which you could defend. It was just an accident, yeah. but a multi-billion dollar accident. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always think of the, there was an artist that did some work for the original Trivial Pursuit inventors. And when his bill was due and they, they, he said, you know, he tried to collect and they said, well, we don't have a lot of money. Would you take stock in our company? And he said, no, I, I need the cash. Uh-huh. And he got paid, but he had taken the stock it would have been worth you know a couple hundred thousand dollars compared to seven hundred and fifty dollars that he had to have at the moment so you just never know no and you know what else is funny about that and actually funny kind of sad is that there are these moments in time where you know two like that's a moment and this happens you know with all kinds of new companies i think there's a famous uh apple i think has a famous story like this that i heard where there was a silent partner who bought in for a certain amount but then needed the money so they had to pay him out uh, but it, mm. he would he would own a third of apple <laughs> like a third if not more i think he was actually a bigger financial backer but it's interesting how in that particular story just the desperation of the times it was just the condition you know maybe had things been a little different he may have considered the stock options but not only do you never know but also conditions may not dictate that you're allowed to have that even though you have an option you're only allowed one of those options well, and the thing the, the thing is, of course, the flip side of that coin is it's only when a toy is hugely successful do you hear those sort right. of stories. <laughs> the industry yeah. the industry is littered with people that put a lot of money into a toy or game that they knew was going to be a huge hit, and that sadly, you know, are are there are games that are Dora Flame logs and roof tiles now that oh, you know, had to be destroyed and recycled and. <laughs> there are plenty of those stories too. You just never hear about them, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. So you know, it, it's it's an interesting segue because one of the things that you mentioned in kind of one of the themes of Toyland is that you have this. It's called the the, the Toy Fair, right? Like I believe that's what it's called. The it's basically the largest toy fair in the country. Where you know, I think you mentioned that almost every toy that's ever existed debuted there. Um, so it's you know, it's it's the thing. 
But you were talking to people, you know, at the time that like sunk a lot of money into these into these um, into these toys, and they're super confident they're going to go, and then they may not. Um, when you go, so do you still go to Toy Fair? Yep. No, this will be my thirtieth Toy Fair this year. Oh my god! Like, so when you go, have you ever seen a toy that you also thought was going to be a gigantic hit that never was? Huh, that's a good question. That never was. You know, they all blend together because there's just you see so much stuff. Yeah, I remember. I, I remember seeing this uh, chemical compound that this. It was a, a woman. There was a couple booth, booths away from us, and it was so cool that people were stealing it. Like she, really? it, it was just amazing. Um, it was, it was sort of like a, a, what do you call it? A polymer that was a liquid and a solid, sort of like silly putty, uh-huh. but it was way cooler than that. So she had a big vat of it, and you could stick your fingers into it, and if you pulled really quickly, it would break apart like a like a solid. Uh, but then it would turn into a liquid again. So you could literally pick up a chunk of it, and as long as you patted it kind of like a snowball, it was – and then you threw it in the air, and you could see it liquefy in the air. Oh, that is cool. And then when it hit your hands, it would turn into a solid immediately, and, and then you'd wait like half a second, and it would run through your fingers. It was the coolest stuff, and I never saw it again. And I was always convinced that like NASA – like water. <laughs> that's but she was a, I remember she was a, like a, she and this these were her words she said I'm just a housewife I you know invented this I have a love of chemistry and she invented this thing she said it's all perfectly safe but uh and then the next day she was so upset because like a lot of her samples were stolen wow. and and that like never happens at a trade show in my experience it's you know there's sort of a camaraderie between brothers and sisters in the trade right yeah but uh so that was probably the biggest one that i thought well something happened with that nasa's probably bought the patent out or something (laughs) well i mean slime i mean now you can make slime at home which is similar but different um this i mean obviously it's a polymer it's very very silly putty-esque but uh, that whole idea of slime is very very popular amongst kids um and i think you even mentioned that in your book that nasa like uses silly putty to like hold their tools in space. Like it works at zero G it's like a extraordinarily useful. It goes into space all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, That was a silly putty and, and that's one of the coolest compounds out there, of course. But now all these years later, there's all kinds of slime on the market. Kids love it. Yeah. Um, so how do people find you? How do people find out what you're into? Can they come see you at Toy Fair? What are you doing at Toy Fair? Um, how can people get in touch with you? Well, my company is The Playmakers, and they can go to theplaymakers.com. And I also own a game company called Geta One Games, which will be at Toy Fair showing off some of the games in that line, which are we're really excited about. So I try to keep my hands in a lot of different things in the toy industry. So Okay. What about Facebook, Twitter? Do you do any of that stuff? Instagram? Yeah, seize the play is what I go on in uh, Twitter and Instagram. Okay, because I'm a big play advocate. I think that's pretty important for us. So I think I agree with you. Uh, I will have links to all this stuff on the website and your 
books, uh, Timeless Toys, and then uh, you just published one a year or two ago with with your mentor, Ren Geyer. Yeah, what's it? It's called Right Brain Red. It's sort of a play on his uh, Twister game, you know, right hand red, <laughs> left foot blue. Yeah, yeah. But it's about book about creativity. He's very successful in several different creative fields. Right, yeah. I mean, just great stuff. A prolific guy. The, the movies Toyland uh, and Operation, Operation, The Power of Play. Uh, so you're going to stick around. We're going to walk through some of the big hits in, in the uh, toy world. Um, but for now, uh, yeah. uh, Tim, I really appreciate you sitting down with me and talking to me about all this. This is incredible stuff. Thank you. Daniel, thanks. It was great. Thanks for having me over to play. Of course. Thank you. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. I'd like to take a minute to tell you that I am now on Patreon and there is no better way to show your support than by becoming a citizen of the fascination. You will get bonus episodes to this at least twice a month for Fascinating Nouns to this show and also all of my shows, including Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies, and even some R&D shows that have yet to hit the public. You'll get them first. Patreon.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And if you want to link to that, go to the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can find it there, as well as ways to subscribe to the show. We have Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, and now we are on Spotify. You can also follow us on social media at Fascinating Noun on Twitter, Fascinating Nouns on Facebook, backslash Daniel J. Glenn on YouTube for Fascinating Nouns supplemental material. we got all that stuff. And if you like this show, you're going to love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.